Well, I can only imagine that what Peter, James, and John saw on the mountain of transfiguration was truly mind-blowing. Have you ever had your mind blown? Think of a time where your mind was blown. My mind's blown every day when I look at, the, look at creation and look at some of the detail in creation. You just need to look at a small flower to have your mind blown, but there will be lots of different um, ways in which we can be grasped by awe and wonder and be stopped in our tracks. Maybe we see that in each other. But Peter, James, and John must have realized, I think, that there was something about Jesus, that he was more than just Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter. He was much more than that. He, he was filled with a presence that marked him out as different. I'm sure when they climbed that mountain to join him in prayer, they didn't quite expect to see what they saw. Now, I, 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 know, I know that amazing things happen when people pray. You know, they, they climb that mountain to pray. And maybe that's an important point to emphasize, that prayer changes things. We believe it does. That great things can happen through prayer. And great battles are won on our knees, so to speak. So, prayer is important. But that's probably not what this passage teaches us. Uh, there's lots of other places in the New Testament that would encourage us to pray and to pray together. But, but this that happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, this was extraordinary. Jesus was lit up like lightning. And time was thrown out the window because Moses and Elijah are there with him in the same scene. So something's happening here which is beyond space and time, and certainly beyond time, as Moses and Elijah are there appearing in glorious splendor. And then Luke tells us in the passage, he says that Peter and his companions were very sleepy. I mean, how could you be sleepy in a situation like that? They were very sleepy. And they gradually became fully awake. And when they became fully awake, it says, they saw his glory. So is there something here about um, people being sleepy, people uh, gradually awaking, awakening to the glory of God? Um, maybe there is a realm of existence to which people need to be woken up to. And I think that's what Jesus is all about. It's about showing us that there is a realm of existence beyond the physical and natural, that there is a communion of the spiritual and the physical. There's a coming together of human flesh and the divine anointing. That's what the incarnation is, I think. And that's what I think in glorious light, Peter, James, and John are witnessing on this mountain. Actually, I think a lot of our faith, or certainly a lot of my own personal faith, is a, is a 
a growing journey into becoming aware or wakening up to the truth. It's true when Paul says we see things dimly, but there'll come a time where we see things more clearly. And I think to grow up in salvation means to grow up in our understanding, to become more and more awake to the truth. And I think this transfiguration story is about, it's about what people see and about how people see things. Now, if you're like me, then your faith is changing all the time. I feel that my faith changes and develops all the time. It seems to change when I meet certain people, when I hear their stories, um, when, I, when I read the Bible, when I pray, um, when I read something by somebody that makes me think, or when I see something for the first time. All of those things can influence my faith, my understanding of who God is and how God exists in the world. Our faith isn't given to us the day we decide to believe, and that's it, left the same for the rest of our lives. It's not. It's there to evolve and to grow with us and to grow in our understanding. Now, I've been really challenged by Richard Rohr. Now, Richard Rohr is somebody I wouldn't normally read, I have to say, but um, he's written a book called The Universal Christ. It's only just out this year. And it's challenged a lot of my previous understanding of what it is to believe, who are believers and who are non-believers. It's rocked a few certainties, and that's not a bad thing, because it's not good to be too certain, especially when it comes to things of faith. Um, there, are, there are obviously, the substance of the faith is good to be certain of, but what I mean is how... Um, how people respond, I think we need to be careful not to be judgmental as to how people are responding to faith. Now, some of the things he has said has challenged me to see things differently. But I'm discovering that there's something deeply truthful about his theology, which I know is helping to shape my own understanding of who God is. I think we all need teachers to teach us and we can, know, we can know when it's truth that we're hearing. For example, here's something that he says in his book. He says this, The whole of creation is the beloved community, the partner in the divine dance. Everything, everything is the child of God. No exceptions. All creatures must in some way carry the divine DNA of their creator. Now, I don't know what you think about that when you read it, but um, you might think, well, hmm. Um, but I've been taught that some are in and some are out, that it's only those who have chosen to believe who are children of God and those who haven't are not. Now, he's suggesting here that everything is the child of God, that there's something in everything that reflects God's glory. Now, if I was to summarize what he means by this, I might say that he simply suggests 
that we need to begin to see Christ everywhere. It's wakening up or seeing things more truly how they are. Here's another quote. It says, We need to look at Jesus until we can see the world with his eyes. In Jesus Christ, God's own broad, deep, and all-inclusive worldview is made available to us. Christ is the light that allows people to see things in their fullness. A mature Christian sees Christ in everything and everyone else. That's something else that he claims, and I'm beginning to agree with. A mature Christian sees Christ in everything and everything else. Here's another slide. The point of the Christian life is not to distinguish oneself from the ungodly, but to stand in radical solidarity with everyone and everything else. This is the end. He goes on. This is the intended effect of the incarnation, symbolized by the cross, God's great act of solidarity instead of judgment. Without a doubt, Jesus perfectly exemplified this seeing and thus passed it on to the rest of history. This is how we are to imitate Jesus, the good Jewish man who saw and called forth the divine in Gentiles, like the Syrophoenician women and the Roman centurions, in Jewish tax collectors who collaborated with the empire, in zealots who opposed it, in sinners of all stripes, in eunuchs, astrologers, and all those outside the law. Jesus had no trouble whatsoever with otherness. In fact, these lost sheep found out that they were not lost to him at all and tended to become his best followers. There's never been a single soul who was not possessed by the Christ, even in the ages long before Jesus existed. Long before Jesus' personal incarnation, Christ was deeply embedded in all things as all things. Now, let's, let's quote from the Bible. Let's look at what the Bible says to, to uphold this. So, Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. That affirms what we've just read. And the next one, he says this, You're a child of God and always will be, even when you don't believe it. You're a child of God and always will be, even when you don't believe it. Now, this might be shaking up some of your uh, beliefs. It's certainly shaken up some of mine, and that's good. Um, because I think this sort of language has not always been the way the church has seen itself. Think about this. What do you think of the idea of your faith evolving? And, or what do you think of the idea of the universal nature of Christ, that Christ is in all things? It's about how we see things. We're given light so that we can see 
Richard Rohr says this, light is less something we see directly and more something by which we see all other things. We need Jesus as the light of the world in order to see all other things. So when Jesus calls himself the light of the world, he's not telling us to look just at him, but to look at life with his all-merciful and non-dualistic eyes. Next slide. So we see him so we can see like him with the same infinite compassion. Christ is our light. Christ is the light within us, the means by which we can see all things. And this is how we change or how we are transfigured because we see all things in and through Christ now. And that changes because we begin to see with a new light, with his light. So, how we see things matters. If we see our world as surrounded by sinners in a fallen world, then it will be difficult for us to see Christ in all things. Again, Richard Rohr says this, this way of seeing makes us feel separate and competitive, striving to be superior instead of deeply connected and in search of ever larger circles of union. The divine presence, he says, always seeks connection and communion, not separation or division, except for the sake of even further future union. And the next slide. I believe God loves things by becoming them. God loves things by uniting with them, not by excluding them. God loves things by becoming them, uniting with them and not excluding them. So we might summarize this by saying with Paul that the aim of life is that we see that there is only Christ. He is everything and he is in everything. Or again, as he says in Galatians, I live no longer, not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ is our life. So, I'm seeing that Richard Rohr's theology fits with Paul's understanding of Christ being everything and in everything. So, I shouldn't be surprised when I read him saying things like, we need to recognize Christ in every person we meet, in every living creature that inhabits this world, in every species of plant, and every tree and every star in the sky. For all things were made through Christ, for Christ, and are one with him. All have some of his DNA. So this is important because it, if we see that all of creation has the presence of Christ, then it will affect how we look after creation. And it matters how we treat the planet, for example. It's important. Last thing to think about is another challenge which I've read in this book. He says that you and I have never been separate from God, nor can we be except in our mind. 
And what he's saying there is that we only think we're separate from God. We never are. But sometimes our mind doesn't help us. In Romans chapter 8, we'd, we'd uphold this. It says, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if it's true that we can only ever think we are separate from God, then the solution is to stop thinking. And I can understand that because I can see that being in Christ isn't a rational thing, but it's what we are. We just need to stop overthinking it and just feel it. Let it happen. Know it in a real way. We might even say in a subconscious way. So I can say now that I can see that in Christ, all of creation is one with God, one with the divine anointing. And I'm waking up to what being in Christ means. And I think this is what God wants us all to see. Actually, maybe you already know this, and it's just me that's waking up. Remember when Moses came down the mountain from being with God, and his face was shining so brilliantly with the glory of God. But after a while, the glory faded, and Moses had to put a veil on his face to stop the people from gazing at it as the radiance faded away. I think we know we're a bit like Moses in that the glory fades the longer we think we are apart from God. Remember, we can never be apart from God. We can only ever think we're apart from God. But things like trouble and hardship, pain and grief, wrong ways of living can cause the glory to fade. Or another way of saying that might be it causes our, or hampers our ability to see properly because we don't see with the light that Christ gives. Yet even in those times, the Spirit is calling us back and calling us deeper in. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image, or from one degree of glory to another, another translation says. When Jesus promised that some of His disciples would not taste death before they would see the kingdom of God coming in glory, I think what he was pointing to was not just this episode on the mountain of transfiguration. But beyond that, he was thinking about his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost with the birth of the church as the body of Christ. That's what he meant by being glorified. All those things would be a revealing of God's glory. God is revealing his glory through all creation through me and you, through every other person and every other creature. We need our eyes to be opened to see this. That's why we need the light or the world to help us to see. And whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away and they can see clearly. Let's pray together. Let's pray. God of light, light of the world, in our union with you, may all veils be taken away. 
May our eyes be opened. May we see Christ in all things. May we see the fullness of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.